Good morning. Would you open up with me to the Gospel of Mark? Very end. I'll be reading from Mark 15, starting in verse 40. Mark 15, 40. All the way through to the end, 16, verse 8. Mark 15, 40 through chapter 16, verse 8. Mark 15:40 There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joses and Salome When he was in Galilee they followed him and ministered to him and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem And when evening had come since it was the day of preparation that is the day before the sabbath Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he gathered the corpse to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen... They went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given us this morning in allowing us to gather yet again on another Sunday morning, a Lord's Day, where we celebrate as we do every Lord's Day the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But this morning, Lord, as we look at the text before us which depicts to us the death and resurrection of our Lord, Grant to us eyes to see and ears to hear. Humble our hearts. Break us if need be. And Lord, remind us of the amazing feat accomplished by our Savior. The miraculous event of his getting up from the dead. Would you be pleased to convict us in sin 
Feed us by your word and nourish us in faithfulness. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the hundreds of weird questions that keeps me up at night is the one question, why do we do the things that we do? I'm sure you've asked that question. What, what makes us do this or that or go here or go there? Why are we here? I think 99% of that answer can be found in knowing your history. The author Michael Crichton has, I think, rightly quipped that if you don't know your history, you don't know anything. You're kind of like a, a leaf that doesn't know it's a part of the tree, right? History is that lens through which we can rightly see and understand our present. Without knowing where we've come from, we're, we're ignorantly coasting along in the present and like lemmings headed towards that cliff called the future. Knowing your history well, for the most part, gives you a lot of insight into who we are and why we do the things we do, right? Do you remember where you were on 9-11? I remember. Freshman year of undergrad in my English lit class. And I remember after going straight to my dorm room after that class that morning, everything changed. Everything. Nothing's been the same since. I mean, the, the, the very culture we live in was impacted by that event. Fundamentally shifted. Perhaps you want to think more personally. Those of you who are married, that event in history which we call our wedding day. You were one person, you got married, and then after that, everything changed. You are not the same person you were before you got married. If you're married, you know that. Everything fundamentally changed. The reality of who you are shifted. The truth is, and this is obvious, historical events in the past have a radical effect on the present. Why do we do the things we do? Well, our present reality has been shaped 100% by our history. And of course, the importance of history only gets enhanced when we come to the pages of Scripture because the Bible, contrary to what a lot of people think, isn't a collection of kind of encouraging, heartwarming, hallmark or, or cookie card quotes and phrases put together to give you a good day. It's not an exhaustive list of rules and regulations either to give you a bad day. And it's certainly not a collection of fables and bedtime stories by which we engage our kids at night. It's a text recounting history, specifically recounting the, the historical actions of God and God's people in time and space. That's how the Bible presents itself. And the passage we've just read this morning is not only the central historical act in all the Bible, it's being presented as the Central historical act in all of history. Paul makes this point later abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says that if Christ has not been really historically raised from the dead, if that event didn't happen, then we Christians are above all people most to be pitied, laughed at. Why? 
Because if Jesus' death and resurrection were, were mere stories of encouragement to kind of bolster our inner sense of overcoming obstacles and vague stuff like that, if Jesus' death and resurrection wasn't historical reality, then we're still left in our sins. And we have no hope. We live in a, a hopeless world. History matters. And the history recounted for us here in this passage eternally matters. The text before us is presented in historical detail, incredible historical detail. As we go through it, I, I kind of want us to first see the details throughout that are bearing all the telltale signs of an authentic historical account, giving us key eyewitness details that, that kind of beg us, the reader, to follow up on. In fact, it seems that's the focus of this whole passage. For instance, looking down at the passage, and this one detail I think kind of unites everything, Mark tells us throughout that, that there was a specific group of women who witnessed these final events in Jesus' life, right? Look down at verse 40 and 41. Mark makes sure to give us the detail that there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Salome, and they followed him and ministered to him. There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And then look, he brings these same women up again in verse 47. See there? Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then finally, the entire last scene in chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, is, is told from the eyewitness viewpoint of Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. So there they are, these women. There at Jesus' crucifixion and death. There again at his burial. And then they're the first ones there at the empty tomb. Clearly, Mark sees them as important to the story. So what are we to make of this? I think a few things. This is what we'll look at this morning. First, the the historical nature and veracity of what Mark is doing here in this passage. And then secondly, we'll look actually at Christ's burial. And then thirdly, at Christ's resurrection. Well, first... Mark is giving his readers, his original first century readers, that is, flesh and blood eyewitnesses to the central historical event of our faith. In other words, the readers would have read this, and perhaps like some of you here this morning would be asking themselves, really though? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And Mark has given them resources here in the text to verify his claim. He's he's telling his readers three times, look, you can ask these women, Mary Magdalene, or Mary the mother of James and Joses or Salome. They were there. And I'm giving you their names because they were there. And so you can ask them. Really, Mark has been doing this throughout the gospel. Look back a couple verses at verse 21. There where Mark tells us about the guy Simon of Cyrene, whom the Roman soldiers made to carry Jesus' cross. Why does he add there in verse 21 that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus? Who cares? Well, it's a historical marker. Alexander and Rufus were most likely guys that became Christians and were a part of that original church that Mark was writing to. And so they would have known these men. And so when the church started reading the gospel, they could have actually gone to Alexander or to Rufus and asked, hey, is this true? Did your dad really carry the cross of Christ? Wait, wait, 
Do you know Mary Magdalene? What did she tell you about the empty tomb? You see what's going on here? Mark is giving us a history, and he's making sure that the historical account is accurate, verifiable, trustworthy. They're like our modern notion of footnotes, but in the actual account, meant to be followed up on. This woman must have been alive at the time, and Mark wrote this, or else he wouldn't have included and cited their names repeatedly. But we also need to see that he's being brutally honest in this historical text. Here's what I mean. Countless historians have made this case, so this isn't anything new. But, but if Mark wanted to invent a nice story to bolster us into following and believing his religion that he and the apostles were making up, well, the last thing that he would ever want to do is to write these details about women being the key eyewitnesses to the central figure and the central effect of his resurrection. See, sadly, and it's true, but in those days, especially in the Roman and Greek world and all over Palestine, a woman's testimony was never counted as trustworthy. In fact, it was never allowed admissible in a court of law. Uh, In those days, the only eyewitness accounts that could ever be trusted was the eyewitness accounts and testimonies of men. We know this is true because of the response many people gave in reading Mark's gospel in those days. For example, there's this guy named Celsus, a Greek philosopher, who in the second century was was really antagonistic to the Christian faith. He he didn't like it at all. He wrote book after book after book of, of why Christianity is not true. His key argument, or at least one of them, went something like this. Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know, says Celsus, that women are hysterical and that their testimonies cannot be trusted. He said that, not me. (laughs) But many, many people agreed with him. The presence of only female witnesses in the text was a major, major problem. So do you see what that means for us? If Mark and the early Christians were simply making these stories up in order to get their movement off the ground, they would have never written women into the story as the first and only eyewitnesses to Jesus' empty tomb. The only possible reason for the presence of women in these accounts is that they were really there, and Mark is really historically writing down what happened. You see, the idea of a man resurrecting from the dead, coming back to life on his own, was just as unexpected and absurd then as it is today. We see that through the story, don't we? Even though Jesus taught that throughout the Gospels, he'd rise from the dead multiple times, the disciples never seemed to really grasp onto it. They didn't believe it. Maybe they thought, like many of us do today, that Jesus was just kind of using this metaphor for, you know, an inward religious change or something. But he wasn't. Jesus was speaking literally, historically. He would rise from the grave. We have to consider, right? Every one of the gospel writers and apostles died under persecution, martyred for their faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. What accounts for that? 
Because if we're honest, men don't die for something they cooked up behind the scenes. Men die for truth, for reality, for things that have happened in historical reality. Friends, history matters. And what's being presented here eternally matters. And I say all this to remind us that what we believe is weird. If you're here as a Christian, we need to recapture the strangeness of what we're doing. We're used to this, aren't we? Year after year, Sunday after Sunday, coming to celebrate Christ and the resurrection. Let's not forget that we do this in remembrance of a real event that defies normal reality. That a man died? Yes, we get it. He was buried in a tomb? Yes, lots of people get that. But three days later, a miracle happened so that the man was and even is now forevermore alive. This history matters. If you're here as someone who's not a Christian, you need to deal with the seriousness of this history. Do you know your history? Have you dealt seriously with the questions being raised by the claims of this text? Because if this has happened, nothing for you can remain the same. And I hope you know that. If Jesus was resurrected, he is there for now, alive. And that means that you will assuredly meet him later either at his return or after you die, when he raises you back to life for that final judgment. Friend, I ask this with all seriousness of history before you. Will you be prepared for that day? The historical reality of Jesus' resurrection assures us that our final judgment before him will also be an historical reality. The historicity of this text begs us to at least consider, where do I stand in light of this event? I told you that this text, there are two central historical events being dealt with. The first is Jesus' burial. We see that in verses 42 through 47. The second is the resurrection, which we get in 16 verses 1 through 8. Well, after Jesus died, hanging still from the cross, we see in verses 42 and 43 a, a surprising bit of information. A man named Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked if he could have the body of Jesus in order that he might bury him. This is surprising on a number of levels. First, men who died by crucifixion didn't get buried. Their bodies weren't asked for. They were usually, almost entirely, left to literally rot away, and then the bones simply thrown to the dogs or tossed into the trash. But here, Joseph courageously and against what should have been done, approached Pilate and asks him if he could have the body in order to bury it before the Sabbath began. That's shocking. But here's what's even more shocking it's who it is that's asking for the body. Look at the text. It says Joseph is is an important member of the Sanhedrin, the very same council of Sanhedrin, which had earlier that day condemned Jesus to death and cried for him to be crucified. This move by Joseph was not only bold, but it was a move that would have most certainly ended his career. It would have most certainly put him and his family on a blacklist to likewise suffer condemnation and persecution later. In other words, 
something happened that moved this man to step out of line with this cultural and religious heritage and now align himself with this condemned blasphemer they call Jesus. We're told in the Gospel of John that he had earlier heard Jesus Christ teach and and from that moment believed in him, but it says secretly. Secret believing in the Gospels is never a good thing. The Gospels always make it clear that, that confession of Christ is true confession when it's both inward and outward, both private as well as public. The Bible makes no room for what our culture tries to teach us today, that a relationship with God is simply a a private matter. That's never true. So even though Joseph believed in Jesus secretly, throughout the gospel, his soul was still in danger because he had not confessed Christ publicly. But isn't it interesting that Mark adds here in verse 43 that Joseph was a man who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Well, that means that he spent his life reading and studying the Old Testament scriptures, looking for the coming of this Messiah, the coming of a king who would usher in God's kingdom. And so perhaps Joseph, steeped in the truths of the Old Testament, written upon his mind and heart, watched in awe as history was being made. As he watched this prophet-like preacher, Jesus Christ, the man who had earlier healed the blind, raised the dead to life, calmed storms and walked on water. Now give himself to die on a cross. I wonder if he thought upon Isaiah's words in Isaiah 53, which were written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, which prophesied of a coming king who would give himself to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So maybe upon his death, a death which was no doubt earth-shaking in its event. Literally, Matthew tells us that the earth shook, and Mark tells us that the sun went dark. All events, actually, that extra-historical accounts tell us happened. And that while even Jesus was dying, the temple of God began to split down the center, signifying, perhaps, in Joseph's mind, that now access to God is being made. Maybe upon his death, Joseph of Arimathea, a man looking for God's kingdom, could keep silent no more. His belief could not remain secret, and so in a bold move he went and requested the body of Jesus, and upon receiving him, buried him in his family's tomb. Friends, this account of Joseph shouldn't be lost on us. Many of us have imbibed the very modern idea that our faith should remain private. I read this morning a a Barna poll that 80% of Americans think it's extremism if you try and talk with another person about your faith and maybe even bring them to your same faith. And the Bible says that a private faith is no faith at all. Jesus expressly states in Matthew 10 that everyone who confesses me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father, but... Whoever denies me before men, whether outrightly or in just silence, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, our confession of Christ is a confession rooted in historical reality of his person and being, of his death and resurrection, and of his ascension. 
And we as Christians outwardly as well as inwardly entrust ourselves to no one else for salvation than he and alone. We do this very publicly by obeying Christ's first command for new Christians to be baptized into his name. A very public and at times even awkward event. We do this by joining ourselves to him in his church. And we confess him continually by partaking together of the Lord's Supper. We also confess Christ by our right living, do we not? We, 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 we confess Christ when we refuse to celebrate certain sins that everyone around us loves to enjoy. We confess and boldly proclaim Christ publicly when we don't give in to the pressure at work or among friends to do something illegal or dishonest. We confess Christ when we stand up for the helpless, for the abused, the poor, and the needy, for those who no one else will stand up for. When we show and give love to those that the world has forgotten about, we confess Christ publicly. We confess Christ when we're willing to be killed for the historical truths we read about in this book. We confess Christ when we boldly, if not awkwardly, profess our faith and evangelize. Friends, if you're here this morning as someone who has a personal relationship with Christ, but it's only personal, and always private, repent of being ashamed of God, the Son of God, Christ. And like Joseph of Arimathea, in boldness take courage and publicly ask for Jesus Christ. It will cost you something. Uh, True discipleship has never been easy, and true love is never cheap. Well, if Joseph boldly confessed his allegiance to Christ at the end of chapter 15, then we see at the Beginning of chapter 16, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, confessed their loving allegiance to him even more. Look there in verse 1. We see that the Sabbath had now passed, and so the first things on their mind was tending to the body of Jesus. They brought spices in order to anoint him, and they they leave to see him at what verse 2 says is very early in the morning, just as the sun was rising. We're worried, right, that in the Middle Eastern climate, the body was already beginning to decompose and and stink. Yet that didn't stop their devotion to attend to Jesus. No doubt women traveling alone in the early hours of the morning wasn't normal nor safe. And yet that didn't stop their devotion to Jesus. As they walked, they began to think a little more clearly about the situation. Realized that there was something that actually could stop their devotion to Jesus. In verse 3, we see that they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the stone? You see, Joseph's tomb was this impressive grave that had been carved out of a rock cliff. And in those days, to close the tomb, there would be this this massive disc-shaped stone rolled down an incline and into a groove in the ground, a feat usually needing a group of men to accomplish. I hasten to say that the other gospel writers make it clear that Pilate had also stationed at the tomb a Roman centurion in order to guard and watch it, you know, just in case Jesus' disciples decided to come and steal the body. All that to say the devotion of the woman was most likely waning as they neared the tomb, thinking of the sheer impossibility before them of actually being able to get that tomb open. 
But something changes here in verse 4. We see a note of surprise. Notice first that they looked up, which tells us that beforehand they had been looking down. Again, most likely saddened, destitute at the situation before them. The man that they had followed in adoring devotion now lay dead, sealed in a tomb, and now they're unable to even give him a proper burial anointing. They're looking down. Their hearts are downtrodden. What seems so bright and promising just a week before as Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem has now all seemed to crash like a feeble house of cards. Everything has fallen down. But now they look up. And to their astonishment, the stone has been rolled back. It was astonishing because verse 4 tells us the stone was very large. It was huge. And so they enter the tomb. Trepidation, no doubt, filling their hearts. What is this? But trepidation soon gave way to outright alarm. Mark tells us, They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You know why they were alarmed? They were alarmed because here was an angel, clothed in dazzling whiteness, sitting here before them. That's alarming. Do you know why else they're alarmed? The body of Jesus that they were expecting to anoint and tend to was absent. It was not there. That's alarming. Do you know why else they're alarmed? Because the angel tells them in verse 6, You seek Jesus of Nazareth, the very man who was crucified two days ago. He is risen. He's not here. Here is an announcement of news. A a, a literal broadcast of of a historical event that absolutely seizes the women with amazement. The man, Jesus Christ, was dead, says the angel. He was crucified. You saw it. You were there. But now he's not. He's not dead. He's risen. He's gotten up. He's alive, and he's moving around because, you know what, he's not here. See, that's where they laid them. You all saw it, Mary, Salome. You were there at the burial. But he's not laying there dead anymore, is he? You know why? Because he's alive. Oh, and by the way, verse 7, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Consequently, we see in the other gospel accounts that, yes, they did see him. In fact, thousands of men and women saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ as he in his resurrected glory met with men and women, continued to teach. He even sat down to eat and drink with his disciples, which tells us, right? The resurrected Jesus wasn't like a ghost. He wasn't this this illusion. He was the God-man Jesus in the flesh. We know from the book of John that the disciple Thomas actually touched the scars in his flesh. In his flesh. Jesus was up. He's moving around. His ministry wasn't over. His mission was still in progress. Maybe I should say his ministry still isn't over. I think this is why Mark's gospel ends with that peculiar line in verse 8. That the women went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Does it surprise you that these women leave trembling and afraid? Should they not have returned home rejoicing and worship at the news they just heard? 
That makes for a good Easter sermon. I think we certainly see here another mark of historical authenticity. Mark is just writing what actually happened. But it makes sense that they respond this way. Remember, throughout the Gospel of Mark, whenever Jesus displays his power, whether he calmed the storm, whether he cast out demons, raised the dead to life, remember when he became transfigured on the mountain? What was the response? It was always one of fear. They showed fear because they had become acutely aware that they were in the presence of divinity. The power and the majesty and the glory of God was fully present in the Son of God, and so it is here with these dedicated women. They've become aware that their attempts to serve Jesus in this tomb has been incredibly outdone, radically overshadowed by the fact that Jesus is in no need of anybody's help. Jesus was never in need of anything. Even as he hung in abject weakness upon the cross, Jesus was showing awesome power in staying on the cross. Even as he agonizingly died under the full weight of crucifixion, Jesus as God revealed perfect glorious strength as he willingly gave himself over to death. And a few days later, as Jesus the man lied dead, deep within a guarded tomb, Jesus shows us his full divine supremacy as he, by his own power, bursts forth into glorious day, alive, breaking the bonds of death. The women are rightly afraid because they're aware that the indestructible, death-defying, universe-creating, thrice-holy and eternal judge over all men is now walking around Palestine as a man and is about to soon meet them. Death couldn't hold him. In fact, Scripture is clear in the resurrection of Jesus. We see the first death blow to death itself. Death is now dying because of what Christ has done in the resurrection. That's a fearful thing. We also need to be clear here. The pages of Scripture from beginning to end make it abundantly clear that that the right response of true worship to the King of Kings is a worship grounded in fear. That our salvation in Christ, the salvation which begins by trusting in him alone and his death and resurrection, is also a salvation which later, the Bible tells us, works itself out in fear and trembling. Godly fear is right. It's worshipful. It acknowledges and makes much of who God is. The Gospel of Mark ends quite abruptly in verse 8, describing the fear that overtook these women as they await to see at any moment the risen Son of God, Jesus Christ. But Mark did this, again, I think, to have his readers, you and I, feel the weight of that very same fear. The story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has not ended. The story is continuing even now when the same Son of God, Jesus Christ, awaits each and every one of us on the horizon. The history-making event of Jesus' resurrection has a bearing on us now. And how we see ourselves now. And how we think about what's to come. History changes things. We're forced to answer the nagging question posed to us here. In light of the historicity of Jesus Christ, in light of the resurrection event, 
Has your present reality changed? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Better yet, who are you now to Jesus Christ? Mark wrote this gospel to make us ask the question, who really is this man Jesus? And now he shows us the nature of a true response, a right and worthy answer. If Christ is alive, and the text assures us he is, then we are to be moved with a sense of awe and wonder that the Son of God actually came to live among us, lived and died and rose again for our salvation, and he's alive now, and even beckoning us now to respond rightly, to respond in faith grounded in godly fear, wonderful awe, grateful joy, and adoring love. As the women departed, seriously contemplating the significance of a risen Christ, the text says they went away and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Before we move to our prayer of response and to lifting up our voices in right, worshipful praise to Jesus, let us now silently, fearfully reflect on the truth that Jesus Christ is now alive. Prayerfully meditate upon the resurrection. Ask the Lord to give you a heart that is also seized by real astonishment.